But today's main event, we are welcoming to the podium Dr. Mohammed Zain Ulabedin, who is our graduating resident, uh, a native of Pakistan. Uh, Dr. Zain, as we affectionately call him, has um, arrived in the United States in Hanover in 2008 and was subsequently turned quite green, um, graduating with degrees in anthropology and biology from Dartmouth College, as well as a doctor of medicine degree from the Geisel School of Medicine, uh, from which he joined us here at Chad as a resident. Uh, along the way, he has uh, published uh, at least eight um, uh, publications in the literature and, and presented three posters. He is going to continue his um, tour of the Ivy League as a fellow in uh, neonatology at Yale University, from whence uh, Dr. O'Day and um, others, Dr. Weinstein and Dr. Kim, ha have come to us. So a, a good, strong tradition. And, um, and you can see returns are possible as well. So you, you are up for narrative medicine, Dr. Zane. Um, to everyone uh, taking the time out this morning. So my topic is narrative medicine, and the reason why I, was in, why I was interested in it was because I was wondering if it was a possible tool to decrease burnout that I think we all face in residency and beyond. When the objectives of my, of my talk are as follows, so I want to be able to talk about the prevalence of burnout, uh, particularly in neonatology, but also in residency, uh, then I want to talk about the development of narrative medicine and the historical context of how this concept was developed. Uh, then I want to talk about the techniques of narrative medicine and how they actually can play a role in decreasing burnout. And finally, I want to talk about the strategies of narrative medicine and how they can be incorporated in residency training as a way to mitigate burnout, not only in residency, but also beyond residency. I recognize that I talk about, because I'm a resident, breaking news, I <laughs> wanted to talk about residency burnout, but I think um, the techniques that I will talk about, they actually affect, they, they affect all of us, and they can be incorporated in the trainings for not just residents, but also attending physicians, nurses, LNAs, MAs, all the people that actually help us make sure that this place runs smoothly and make sure that we give the best possible care to our little patients. So I'll begin my talk. When I was in college, I had a professor who always um, had a painting that began every lecture. And I thought that was a really good touch. I think because I'm talking about narrative medicine, which is about, one of the things it's, it's about is taking perspective. So I think art plays a particularly important role. So I will be showing the painting. I will be referring the painting later on. It would be great if we could take a few moments to just look at the painting and see what's it about. I will say the painting is slightly gory. There is some blood, so just fair warning. <laughs> um, but it is, it is a particularly poignant painting, and so without further ado. Um, this painting is by an artist named Bernard Palvin. He uh, was a Life magazine correspondent during World War II. He was based in Greece. And this painting is based on his experience when he was in Greece and there was a bombing and there, uh, an allied soldier was hurt in the bombing. Um, he mentions that he, that all of a sudden, you know, people like took him aside 
and they decided to amputate, amputate him, and they beckoned to the artist, Bernard, who was not a soldier in the setting, to, kind of, to come and help. And so he helped by holding down the patient. They obviously didn't have anesthesia, and then the surgeon uh, amputated the, the patient's leg. In particular, Bernard um, felt that this was like a very particular moment in, during the war effort, so when he came back to the U.S., he painted this portrait. I will take a few minutes, a few seconds, just like appreciate this painting. Like I said, I will be bringing this up later as well, but just a few seconds to look at it. I also think that because I'm talking about narrative medicine, I did want to talk, start with a story. So I'll start with my own story. Once upon a time, two and a half years ago, when I was an intern, I worked in the ICN. And I loved it. It was great. We had a patient, uh, a baby that was born, to, to a young couple who were happily married. And this was like a highly desired pregnancy. And the pregnancy had been very uneventful. And they were very excited for the birth of their baby girl. The, the labor process was a bit tumultuous, and eventually the baby, um, they had to do a stat C-section because of concerns about uh, the fact that the baby's heart was slowing and just concerns about that. The baby was born, um, and there was concern when the baby was born that she had had hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is um, a situation when there is decreased blood flow to the baby during, during the birth process. It can lead to brain damage. She, she, was certainly, she certainly met the parameters where she, this diagnosis would be consistent, and she also met the parameters for um, a method we can use to, to treat the possible, to decrease the, the brain damage that can happen as a result of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. The treatment at Dartmouth and the, the, the treatment worldwide, essentially, for, for this is something called therapeutic hypothermia when we cool the baby's body temperature to mitigate, to decrease the effects of, of the, the brain damage due to hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. As part of the protocol, all babies who are cooled at Dartmouth are also, also undergo EEG monitoring, which is essentially a way to look at how the baby's brain waves are, how the baby's brain is recovering. It was heart-wrenching telling the family that, they're, they're, that this baby that they were expecting with so much joy unfortunately had to undergo this procedure. The parents were very understanding, and the baby was cooled. This is what the baby's EEG, which is the brain waves, looked like when she was being cooled. And this is what it looked like for the whole 72, 72 hours that she was cooled. To those in the audience that don't know how EEGs are supposed to look like, this is not what they're supposed to look like. This would be called a flat EEG. There is no activity. This is a normal neonatal EEG. Do you see all the, the, all the activities and all the lines moving? This was not the baby's EEG at any point. The baby's EEG looked like this. After three days of cooling, 72 hours, we decided to... Get, obtain an MRI to be, so we could have the conversation with the family about future prognosis. Although all of us had understood, looking at the EEG, that the prognosis was poor, we waited to get the MRI on day of life five. We got the MRI, and it showed significant neuro, neurological damage. We discussed the options with the family. 
and the family decided to redirect care. The baby passed away in a few hours after that. Like I said, I was an intern. This was my first ever baby with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and it absolutely crushed me. And it also got me worried. I knew I wanted to do neonatology when I, ever since I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth. And I was worried that if this is what a, new, uh, a patient in neonatology would be, then how, then, then I was really worried about burnout and emotional exhaustion. And I was also worried about how prevalent burnout could be in the neonatal world. So, just a definition of burnout for, for those in the audience. I think burnout can be described as a psychological syndrome with three, or with three dimensions. There's just overwhelming exhaustion, feelings of cynicism and detachment from the job, and a sense of ineffectiveness and, and, and lack of accomplishment. I felt like I met all three dimensions when I was taking, after this baby had passed away. And it got me to thinking about how prevalent burnout is in the neonatal world. It's very prevalent. This study is from 2015, and it looked at 41 NICUs in the California region, and it was a questionnaire that was given to um, all the physicians and non-physician providers in all these 41 NICUs. And there was 27% of the staff reported symptoms consistent with burnout, which is, which is quite a high figure at the time that they took, uh, at the time that they, that they took this survey. So obviously, you know, depending on um, this, this number could be higher. I was also a resident when this happened, and there is burnout in residency as well, which is also quite prevalent. So this paper came out in 2015, and it looked at 40 pediatric residency programs where 54% of residents reported burnout. Of course, residents who, have, who, who are showing signs of burnout, they have, they have higher rates of negative patient care as well as negative attitudes and behaviors. This percentage can vary, so I chose this paper, but depending on the year and the site of training, this number can vary from 25% to as high as 75%. And obviously, burnt out residents become burnt out attendings. And so there is a high prevalence of burnt out, of, res, of attendings also mentioning that they feel burnt out at their jobs. And I think most people in this audience, at some point or the other, would acknowledge that they have felt burned out. So why is that? And I think it's an important thing to consider why, why are these feelings so prevalent? And, you know, and how can we move forward? But I think before we move forward, we have to talk about how we got here. I chose this particular painting to talk about this. This is a painting by Sir Luke Fields. And, this, and it's titled The Doctor. And he painted it um, when he was commissioned to paint a portrait about any topic he could choose. And he chose to, to make a painting about the doctor who took care of his son when he was one years old. His son unfortunately passed away, but both the artist and his wife were particularly touched by how, by the care that they had received from this physician. There are a lot of things in this painting that I would like you to notice. So again, I will take a few seconds and I will point them out to you, but please take a few seconds to look at this painting. <clears throat> I don't know how many noticed, but there are, but, the, but, but it was, presumably the, 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 the patient's parents are kind of in the back. The mom is distraught clearly 
even though you can't really see the dad, you can see that he's quite concerned. The child is in the front. They're clearly not a well-to-do family, as evidenced by the fact that the patient is not on a bed. He's on two chairs stacked together. But what's really the focus of this painting is the physician. He's stoic. He's looking at the patient, pondering how he can help him. It is interesting to note that when this painting was painted, there was no one model for, for the physician. There were multiple models chosen because the artist wanted to, to, wanted to depict not one person's likeness, but actually the model for medicine as he saw it was being practiced. So this is, so this is how we've historically thought of physicians. We've thought of them as stoic. We've thought of them as hardworking. We've thought of them as compassionate. We've also thought of them as people who've been able to, to separate their own emotional feelings and their own emotional concerns from the larger concerns of taking care of their, of their patients. And we have, we, there, there has been a historical background on how this has developed. This uh, gentleman here, it's Abraham Saxner. And he's responsible for the current, for, for the shape of the medical curriculum in the United States and Canada. Abraham Flexner was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation to write a report on the medical curriculum in the U.S. Because by the turn of the century, there were many, many medical schools and their standards were very, very varied. So he was commissioned to write this report. He published this report in 1910. He traveled all over the country, as well as Canada and Europe, and he was really impressed by the German medical education curriculum. He proposed the current model in his report in 1910 that we actually still have today. So the, so the model to, to have four years of undergraduate prior to four years of graduate school, the model to have two years of preclinical years that focus on the sciences, and then two years of clinical sciences, um, and the other thing he did was that he really felt very strongly that biology was what was paramount. The responsibility of a physician was, was that human beings, like animals, were composed of cells and tissues and organs, and cells and tissues and organs could be damaged by disease, by war, by physical ailments. And the responsibility of the physician was to be able to look at the disease, to look at the ailment, and then figure out a cure and, 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 and cure that. And, and, that was, and that was their responsibility. And this is verbatim from his report where he talks about how humans and animals are and biology is essentially the same in all these entities. And so, and so that was a model of medical education that was developed uh, and, and practiced. Flexner's report was instrumental. It, um, by, by, because of the prestige that the, the foundation it came from and the fact that it was considered to be so well published, um, it meant that a lot of state legislatures actually attached a lot of importance to this and actually used it to develop uh, standards for, for medical school systems. Nearly a third of medical school, schools at the uh, that, that were present at the turn of the century actually closed a few years after the Flexner Report was written. A third of the med schools had to realign their values with significant funding, and a third of med schools were, were untouched. Interestingly, um, Johns Hopkins was considered to be the premier 
medical school because his brother was the dean of Johns Hopkins. So we can talk about his own biases <laughs> in this report later. But the point is that this report became the foundation of what is medical education in this country. And it became the foundation for how we thought about medicine. Medicine was biology. There was no lived experience. And so we went developing this theme forward. And we did things. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of scientific inquiry was focused, was based on this premise. Unfortunately, that also meant that a lot of decisions, that a lot of things were done in the name of science, in the name of pursuing higher, uh, to, uh, of higher education that, in retrospect, were quite shameful. There were many such examples, but I think the most poignant was the Tuskegee syphilis study. The study was commissioned in 1932, and it lasted until 1972, and it looked at 600 black men, um, and they were all given syphilis, and the idea behind the study was to study the effects of syphilis. These men were not told they were being given syphilis, and the idea was to see how they would, what symptoms they would develop if the syphilis was untreated. We discovered the treatment that penicillin cured syphilis in 1947, so 15 years after this study was started. We did not, these, 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 these individuals were not given the treatment until 1972, when many of them had already died. The Tuskegee syphilis study was a benchmark. Like it, it changed how we conceived of ethics. It changed of how we conceived of clinical trials. But it unfortunately did happen. There was a lot of criticism around the Tuskegee trial, as well as many other trials when this was happening. And so there was also criticism of the biological model that had prevailed through medicine so far. I'm having a hard time with this clicker. I'm having a really hard time. It just worked. So there was criticism of the biological model as a result. By 1975, people, intellectuals, had been talking about how patients were not just cells, tissues, and organs. They had a lived experience. They had a social life, an inner psyche, as well as a biological basis. And, and, that, and that all of these three aspects needed to be investigated in order to provide adequate care. There was also a rise, especially as... as things like Tuskegee happen to, to talk more about culture and to talk about ethics in the larger scheme of what is medicine. And so there was a rise of journals that, that touched upon both culture and ethics as well as, as, as medicine. And finally, there was also the sense that we needed to counter what is the biological model of, of the illness with, with what is known as phenomenon. With, with phenomenology, sorry about that, which is a school of thought that looks at the experience which, of, of an illness, so an ex, which seeks to quantify what is, what is experience. So it looks at both what is subjective, but also what is objective to, to create a picture that is different than prior. And so it was in the 1970s that this idea that, that came about, that illness is actually an altered state of experience. And it, was, it stemmed from the prior school, the, the, the school of thought that I mentioned, uh, phenomenology, which looks at, which studies how experience is conceived. And so illness is different because when people are sick, and although this was consistent, this was argued for 
uh, chronic illnesses or really severe illnesses, but I think that I think illness, even if it's mild, has uh, these, these principles that I will talk about applies to illness even if it's mild. So when people are sick, they lose their freedom. They lose their freedom of action. They, in most cases, do not have the requisite information to be able to get better. They are more dependent on the people around them. And they think of themselves in a different way. And I think, and, and, I, and like I said, I think this applies to whether it's a mild cold or even, or even something far more serious than that. Because I think when people get sick, it transforms how they think of themselves, even if it's for just a day. And so when this idea was being developed, that the illness is an altered state of, of, of existence, that it, there is an experience tied to this, to an illness. And so Pellegrino argued that people who have an illness have a wounded humanity. This was, this, although Pellegrino was a medical philosopher and as well as a medical internist, an interesting combination, this finding was also echoed by other, by other intellectuals. One of them in particular was Arthur Kleinman, who was a psychiatrist as well as an anthropologist, who also came to a similar conclusion and believed that, therefore, medical providers have a responsibility to not just focus on the biological, but also on the experience of the patient. So this was counter to what had been so far proposed in the medical education and the medical curriculum prior to this. And this started happening in the 1970s to 80s. When people are sick, or when people's life maps alter, humans have a tendency to, explore, to explain their experiences through the act of storytelling. When you tell a story, you have control over the narrative. You can relay that story to the people around you, and you can explain your symptoms and your life experiences based on your knowledge of how you think the world works. And that can help you at least explore your experience and at least like, be on a pathway to, to heal yourself. And so, essentially, what we do every day, whether it's in the inpatient ward or in the clinic or whatever, we tell stories. Patients tell us stories. That's how they make sense of the world. And that's how they make sense of their symptoms. And then they come to us and they tell us a story. And if they are lucky enough to get a resident, they tell the resident a story. The resident then asks them questions and then develops that story further and then goes back and tells their attending the story, the attending asks more questions. Now the story is going to be embellished further. If they have to call a consult, the story will be told a second time. And then they go back and they tell a story to the patient, which combines the patient's experience with their own experience. And then finally, there'll be a story that'll be put in the chart, an abridged version that is more, that is a physical document. So people who are sick, tell stories to explain their sickness. We listen to those stories and reinterpret them in multiple forms and ways, and finally, we are able to work towards a cure. So stories are integral to medicine. And what 
being able to like tell a story, but not only that, but being able to understand the story is what is crucial to being effectively able to heal your, your patient. And in order to effectively listen to a story, it's called narrative competence. So when someone tells you a story, you have to do a lot of work. And that's the idea behind narrative competence. You have to be able to absorb the story, acknowledge the story, acknowledge the metaphors in the story, and who is telling the story. And, and the ability to do so is narrative competence. And medicine that is practiced with narrative competence is narrative medicine. So I've ex- now explored a new topic of narrative medicine and narrative competence. So what, is, what are the tools of narrative medicine? Narrative medicine rests on these two pillars of both of reflective writing and close reading of the stories. So the job of the physician is to be a close reader, physician as a reader, and our job is to be able to look at a story, listen to a story, know why the story is being told, who is telling the story, why they're telling the story the way they're telling the story, what other interpretations are out there, who are the characters in the story, how are they related to the story itself, and what metaphors are being used, and how are people using the themes to to explain themselves. And so in order, the theme about narrative medicine is that these skills can be learned. And these skills can be learned through the use of the humanities, through perspective taking, through art, through literature, through poetry, through trips to the museum, by, by, and, through, and through focused small groups, through working with people who come from diverse backgrounds to realize that people can have multiple viewpoints of a particular situation and all those viewpoints are valid, and they, and they sometimes can contradict each other. So there's no master authority. There are multiple local authorities. And so a patient's story is as valid as a consultant's idea of that story. And so both of those stories should be shared and should be, and should be related to each other. The other aspect of narrative medicine is a physician as a writer. And that is a, and that is a very significant component of this which is the idea that we should be able to reflect, critically reflect on what we experience. We should be able to put it down to paper, kind of like similar to journaling, and be able to share how how an experience has transformed us, be able to put that into words, share those words with people around us, encourage and invite critique and feedback, and further develop that, develop our reflections further. And the other idea behind in, in, that is a component of physician as a writer is to develop something called a parallel chart. So not just a chart that documents that is a physical that, that is a chart that is in the physical record or the physical EMR, but actually a chart that is developed in conjunction with the patient that talks about the patient's experience of a visit and the physician's experience of the visit. And this chart is developed further and is separate from the the the, the more medical chart and gives an opportunity for the physician and the patient to reflect on the relationship and how they can continue to develop it further. So, therefore, there are three major foundations of narrative medicine. The first focus is on attention, so committing yourself to the story, to the patient's story, but also when you're learning the techniques of narrative medicine and improving your techniques of narrative medicine to what is in front of you, whether it's art or literature or 
our, our focus group experience, but to really listen to the multiple viewpoints. The other aspect of narrative medicine is representation. So that is what I referred to earlier when I said critical self-writing. It is to give a representation to what, is, what was prior an experience without a form, an experience that was oral. Narrative medicine stresses that we should be able to write that down, give it a visual or literary f form. And that is important. And finally, affiliation, which is developing the relationship between the patient and, and the physician and all the, 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 all the staff around the physician, around the patient who are there to help treat the patient. So narrative medicine has actually plays a role in, in all the relationships that I've mentioned so far. Narrative medicine can play a role in all in, the, in, in these relationships. There are four relationships that I will talk about where narrative medicine plays a role the relationship between the physician and the patient, the relationship between the patient and, the, the, sorry, the physician and himself or herself, the relationship between physicians, and the relationship between the physician and the community. I think it's easiest to understand the relationship between the physician and the patient. I, I, think, all of, I think all of us here can remember back when we were told in medical school that you try not to, you have six seconds before somebody interrupts when a patient is presenting their HPI. And if you don't interrupt, you will get the diagnosis. So I think that's quite easy to understand that many times the diagnosis is within the story. People are able to report their symptoms. And if, even if the diagnosis is not within the story, at least a focused differential can be developed. Also, narrative medicine will allow us to develop a therapeutic alliance with the patient because it validates the patient's story. It means that the patient's story was heard and they know that it was heard. And finally, narrative medicine allows us to tolerate ambiguity because it allows us to understand that there are multiple viewpoints to, to any story and it allows us to understand that a story might not have, we might not know the ending, and that, and that is all right, because what matters more is that the story, is that at least we're working towards telling that story, and at least we're working towards sharing that experience. And by building, by building a therapeutic alliance, and by building empathy, um, we, we, can, we can be all right with the, with the ambiguity, which prevails throughout medicine, as we all know in this room. And finally, by developing empathy, to our patients by appreciating their story, it can help to mitigate burnout. It can help to mitigate the exhaustion of when you don't know, when you know it's not going to be a happy ending, or when you know that you might not know the, 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 all the answers. It also, narrative medicine plays a role in the physician's relationship to himself. It gives an opportunity for physicians to talk about, to, to discuss their own personal experience on how they felt, the why they felt, and the way they felt, and to be able to reflect and understand how they think a disease is progressing and how it's affecting the patient around them. And finally, by, by producing these pieces of critical self-reflection, it is an opportunity to, to further enhance their own understanding of, of what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are and how they can do better. I think 
many people have, have many physician authors have, have talked about this. And so narrative medicine is not a new concept in the sense that people have been doing this for some time. I want to talk about this particular book. book um, this is by an author named Abraham Verghese, who's quite famous. Um, and he's a physician, uh, and he wrote this story. It is not an autobiographical story, although it borrows heavily from his elements, from, from his own personal life. But this, but this novel uh, explores the relationship between a resident physician as well as a medical student. And the medical student is their, their tennis partners, hence the title. And they play tennis uh, uh, every day, and they guide each other. The resident guides the medical student on, in the wards, whereas the, the, the medical student guides the, the author on the tennis court because he's better. And it's their, it's their relationship. But essentially, it turns out that, and if you haven't read the book, I, I might just ruin it for you. Um, <laughs> it turns out that the medical student is... Um, has an IV, is, an, is addicted to IV drugs, and he unfortunately uh, passes away due to the disease. And this opportunity was an, this book was an opportunity for the author to actually understand the disease of addiction. And so this, this book is actually, in a, in a way, almost narrative medicine as a tool for him to understand why it happened the way it happened. The other aspect of narrative medicine is the relationship between physicians to other physicians around them. As, as physicians in this community, we have a responsibility towards each other to not only advance the field of medicine, but also to be a source of support, to be, to be, to be, to be a mentor, to, be, to, to our colleagues in this, in this community. And by telling our stories and sharing our stories, we can really build on these bonds. And by developing the, 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 the support within with other physicians around us, we can develop support for ourselves. So when we have challenging patients or patients where we, are, where we don't know what to do, by building, by using the skills of narrative medicine, we can build these relationships and mitigate burnout, which, which, is, which is important so that we can continue to take care of our patients. And by doing so, we can allow clearings, which is this idea that was developed by Rita Sharon, which is this idea that the silence, uh, clearings refer to spaces that are, that are beyond the clinical, um, and they're spaces to, to reflect, to engage, and to think about um, the themes that, 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 that we've talked about and the patient experiences, and to share those with the people around us to develop a gaze that goes beyond the clinical gaze. And I think narrative medicine will allows us to develop these clearings. Narrative medicine and the art of storytelling also plays a role within how physicians interact with the community around us. So when we can tell the story, when we can better tell a story and better understand a story, we can better understand complicated medical issues. We can also humanize the, the social determinants of health in an easy-to-understand context. So we can talk about why do people get sick the way they get sick. And finally, we also have an opportunity to discuss how resources are not being appropriately utilized. This article came in the New York Times last year. Um, it's an incredible uh, work. I, I don't know if people in the audience have read it. But it essentially talks about how the fact that in today's, that in the United States today, Black babies are, they are, black babies have a rate of death that is 11.3 deaths per 1,000 births compared to 
deaths per 1,000 births for, for, white, for white infants. So there's like almost like more than twice the discre uh, discrepancy. This is, these are actually worse statistics than 1850, which is prior to the abolition of slavery. And that is shocking, the fact that, that, that this still happens. And so this article, again, utilizes the tools of narrative medicine to really interrogate why this is why this happens. And so they use a particular woman's story and her story with the medical care system to further illuminate how the medical system fails black mothers and black babies. And it talks about how the, just the, the and, and it talks about how it talks about multiple themes um, when it talks about that, um, but it also talks about strategies to do better, which I think is which is, which I think is important and a crucial aspect of, of these exercises. Um, it is interesting to note that this article and probably the multitudes of research that, that helped this article come, come, come to fruition have actually had an impact on our political discourse today. And there is at least one Democratic candidate who has actually put a proposal to deal with this, to deal with this issue. And so these tools are helpful and they will change the, and they can be used to change the, the narrative around us. And I think that is important is because as somebody who works with Steve Chopin in clinic, you know, if things really make you upset, you should try to do better. Like, that is, that is what is advocacy. And so this is upsetting, and we should do better. And by telling the story to the, to the world at large, that is our responsibility to be able to communicate the story to the world at large and to be able to then develop strategies to do better. So... We talked about narrative medicine and the role it plays in these four significant relationships that, 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 that surround us in, in medical practice. But let's really talk about me narrative medicine and the tools we talked about and how they affect medical practice. So I mentioned that I would talk about the painting again. So I'm going to bring the painting again. There's a little bit of participation I'm hoping that somebody will volunteer some something that they want to share about this painting. If not, I will keep talking. <laughs> so there. So I think one of the coolest parts of this painting is kind of how each person's reaction to this event is uh, perfect. Like the guy on the left terrified and upset and he's looking away, or the one who's really focused and maybe upset that he has to hold this guy down, and one guy who just seems like he doesn't care about any of them. <laughs> um, but I think exactly like you said, it kind of tells a story on each person's face about how they're feeling in this one moment, in one scene. Sure. Yes. I think it's interesting that there's you know there's seven people being dramatically impacted by this. Two of which you can't even see how they're experiencing it, and that they have an important part at the head of the patient. I just can't imagine being in a situation. But I agree, everybody's emotions are a little bit different, and that's very real. Like we would all approach this situation very differently, and walking away, we would have different you know trauma associated with that. Yeah, thank you. So this painting was actually um, 
was actually discussed in this paper. Uh, this came out in JAMA in 2018. The authors for this paper are actually in the room, so this is very nerve-wracking. Um, <laughs> But this was part of, 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 of um, narrative medicine, uh, ideas about narrative medicine that, were, that was taught to surgical interns. And this painting was brought up as part of the, as part of the coursework. And it is interesting to, to the, the surgical interns had some very interesting perspectives that are very different from the perspectives that were shared in this room. <laughs> they mostly critiqued the technique. Um, they, somebody mentioned that everyone looked very bored. And, um, and they also mentioned that um, the anesthesia was ineffective, which is true. Um, and then the painting was shown a second time to surgical attendings, nurses, as part of Grand Round, so there was a, 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 a larger audience, and where the perspectives were different. And the surgery attendings really focused on the fact that the surgeon, the gentleman right there, is focused on the patient. The only person who's looking at what he's doing is the surgery attend, is, is, is the guy who's doing the amputation. I don't know if he was an attending. Um, and so the theme of this paper was that, the idea was that, that how, and, the, and these opinions differ from what the other two authors were seeing in this painting and how the nurses in this grand round experienced the painting in a different way than the surgical interns did, than the surgical attendings did. And that's the idea, what, what I'd mentioned earlier, about having spaces where these multiple viewpoints and multiple perspectives are acknowledged and appreciated. And that is the crux of narrative medicine, because by doing so, by, by allowing these spaces, we can develop our own skills to better understand our patient's experience and to realize that we, that they might have a very different perspective than our perspective, and their perspective matters as much as ours does. So narrative medicine has been part of the curriculum at Columbia um, University since 2001, and this is the one study that they did, uh, this is the one study that they did look, that looked at how narrative medicine builds um, competencies for residency. And so they looked at 12 students and they interviewed them a year and a half after residency. And the students mentioned that the skills they had learned as part of their curriculum actually helped them develop to be better um, residents. It helped them to be more empathetic. It helped them to develop better communication skills and helped them, and they felt that it helped them to be there for their patients. A lot of this data, and there are multiple studies around this, is very qualitative. Cognitive data is challenging to, to come across. So, but I did want to talk about the one paper that I found, which looked at the a narrative medicine curriculum in, in an academic setting and had quantitative data. So they looked at 20 physicians who underwent a narrative medicine curriculum, 10 who only got the literature, and 10 who had no, had no intervention. And so what they did uh, was then they scored how the, on a self-scoring questionnaire, how they felt their empathy scores were developing. And so they felt, the authors felt that there was, it was significant for, um, the p-value was significant, that the people in the intervention group, the 20 physicians who underwent a narrative curriculum, felt that they were more empathetic as a result of, of undergoing this training as compared to the physicians who did not undergo the training or only received the literature materials. If you didn't pay any attention to any of my grand rounds and slept through it, um, this uh, it came out in January 2019, uh, and it's a very succinct summary of the themes that I discussed, and it actually talk, is actually very relevant to 
as the title suggests, to pediatric residency training. Um, and I think if you have time, and it's a, it's a two-page read, but I think it's a very interesting read on, on these concepts and, and what these concepts are. So we've talked about narrative medicine and the role it can play, but it is challenging. It is challenging to, to incorporate that into residency for multiple reasons. Residents work hard. We, we have, we have a, and we have a work limit on how much we can work. And I don't think anyone wants to be in a book club after they've already done 80 hour work weeks. So we also want to be researchers. We want to write more. We want to publish more because we want to go to fellowship. Um, there also just might be a lack of institutional support for these ideas. And finally, there just might be a lack of facilities where there's space to talk about these ideas. We are different. So we actually have great mentors at DHMC to talk about narrative medicine. I already mentioned the fact that, that there are two authors for the paper that I mentioned who are in this room right now who do narrative medicine and develop a curriculum for the surgery interns, and we could possibly ask them to do a narrative medicine curriculum for the pediatric residencies. We also have a strong association with Dartmouth College, as well as we have opportunities for cultural education in the Upper Valley. We have time because we have didactics, and a lot of facilities that have incorporated narrative medicine in their curriculum have actually used the time for didactics as an opportunity to have multiple people come, people come together and talk about their perspectives. And finally, we have an opportunity to develop the, clinic, the, the parallel charts as well using our continuity clinic, continuity clinics as an example of having patients who we can, who have who we see on a regular basis and we can develop a relationship with them and we can develop a chart that is separate from the, the medical chart that we have that talks about our experience with them. So we have these opportunities. So we, have, so we can incorporate narrative medicine into, into our stories and in a way we do. We already, all of us, all the residents as well as many attendings incorporate these tools in their day-to-day -day life. So none of this is brand new as much as it's a brand new frame of the, uh, uh, brand new ideas as much as it, a way, as it is a way of reframing what we already have and by, and by giving terms to things that we already do. And so I think that I, even before I'd been exposed to the ideas of narrative medicine, had, was, was developing these, was, was trying to develop these uh, practices into my daily habit. So, so like I said, I began this talk by talking about the death of this, uh, of this infant in the, in the NICU when I was an intern. And I talked about how crushing that was. And I will mention that, you know, I, like I said, I was an intern, still trying to figure out how to order TPN. And so I had to go back to work the next, the next minute, actually, and I had to go to come back to work the next day. And... But like I said, it did crush me. I, I had a really hard time dealing with this. Um, and it really scared me for the future that, that for, for my future career as a neonatologist. And I will say to the credit to multiple people in this room, I had an opportunity to explore my feelings, to talk about my perspectives, and, and, to, and to allow myself to heal, and to allow that these experiences were valid, and they, and they mattered, and my experience mattered, and taking care of this baby was important, and, and, and it helped me to be a better human being as well as a better physician. But it also made me think. It made me think what we could have done better and what we could have done differently. And so 
we had, I knew that we had the data with the EEG that I'd, that I'd shown prior, so we had all this information, and I started to wonder if we could use that to maybe predict prognosis and, and be able to have this conversation about reduction of care maybe even earlier, or at least be able to give the patient some more information prior to the MRI. And so it got me thinking, and it led me to Dr. Richard Morse, who was also very interested in this question. And so we looked at all the babies who had been cooled in the history of DHMC, 69 babies, and we looked at all of their EEGs, and we, and we looked at what their MRI showed, and we looked at whether the EEG could, the changes in EEG could depict patterns of, of, of their prognosis. We completed the data, we presented it at a conference. We did actually show there were patterns that we could recognize, that we could talk about. And, and during my fellowship interviews, I talked about this data, and, and every place that I interviewed at, people, people mentioned this data, and people mentioned this work, and people mentioned how impressive it was. And people, like, people also mentioned like using the data for their own, for their own NICUs, uh, when the paper will be published, um, and that and that was and that was heartening, because and even at DHMC, I know that Dr. Morse in his notes like mentions our data. I, I know for a fact that Tyler Hartman also has quoted my data back to me when we've been talking about infants undergoing therapeutic hypothermia, and I think that mattered to me because I think that um, even though that baby died, in some ways she lived. Because she made me a better human being, she made me a better physician, she made me a better researcher, and every time we talk about the data, I, I feel like she's 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 with us. And so, I know I'm not going to cry, but I will definitely tear up. In some ways, she helped me heal the most. So, these are the objectives to my talk. Thank you so much for coming. If you have any questions, please let me know. Like 10 minutes, but it's fine if you don't. So I'll take the first one. In your, um, in your preparation for the talk. You've got my glasses. Yeah, so you can see us. Yeah. Did you, you come upon anything about uh, how we document now electronically and, and almost in real time impacts uh, the ability to tell the story, not, not, the, not the journey in parallel story, but the, the actual story, uh, or to, to represent an encounter as a story rather than a, a series of, of observations that you, that you document in the MR. So, so like, the, like using the tool, like being able to like depict the story while, while they're telling it? Does the, does the tool undermine our ability to be narrative? Uh, narrative chronicler of patient experience. I, I think it does. I actually think EMR actually does does contribute to this because I think we there are, there are checkpoints that you have to fill so you can build appropriately, and I think that that becomes a primary focus. But I don't think that has to be the only focus. I, th I do think that's why developing like a secondary chart or developing a secondary expe uh, uh, a way to communicate with the patient is important. But I but I will agree with you. So, um, I love the idea of narrative medicine, especially being used in kind of residency 
trainings. And you mentioned that your residencies would do kind of uh, use this method as a way of healing burnout, et cetera, for their residents. Are they all focused on written medicine? I was kind of thinking about whether something like oral storytelling would be more time efficient for residents who are who don't want to write when they get home after a yeah. day. Yeah. And... No, I think I think it's I think it's I think it's uh, they would use multiple tools. So I think oral storytelling was, and I think for the reason that that I'd mentioned about UTR restrictions, um, and no one wants to write more when they come back home. Um, to, to use the didactic, there's an opportunity to tell the stories and to like really like like frame the multiple experiences, but also to, like to look at art and to discuss art. As an opportunity. Can I help to answer that with just some interesting information from other residency programs? When we were at APPD this spring, I think this came up in Grand Rounds once already, but um, there are some really large programs in the Midwest who are doing oral story jams, um, sort of as after work activities or having them at breweries or parks or other kinds of places to try to draw people in. And the idea is all sort of narrative medicine but in an oral storytelling format and people got really excited about this idea there was a little bit of buzz among the new england programs about whether that would be a nice way to to bring different programs together so i think it's it's a cool idea and it's definitely floating around out there yeah. the program that they were talking about came out of minnesota and they're basing it on the moth story hour if anybody mm -hmm. listens to that and they so they have residency story slams across the gme institution and it's a pretty cool way i think one of the points that came up that um when Sam and Carolyn and I listened to this talk was that it was really helping, as you said at the beginning, to mitigate burnout and compassion fatigue and the uh, and empathy. Um, so it was really helping um, residents who are working really hard hours, 80 hours a week, doing really difficult things and being a novice at many of the things that they do, to have a shared and lived experience. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can comment on that. You know, personally for you, with the story of this baby, um, you started mentioning that it can mitigate burnout. How do you see it mitigating burnout kind of across a GME institution or across um, our residency program if we were to implement something? I, I, think, I think it would help. I think... I think it would, like, formalize what had the informal conversations that I had around this. And I think that... And I think that is... Um, big by, by kind of, like, making it, like... Um, an opportunity for multiple people to share their perspectives. I think it can be an opportunity to really understand, you know, that other people also go through similar feelings and like how they dealt with them, because that's that, because that's what helped me. And I think I think by using these opportunities and realizing that they're different perspectives, um, and also like writing about these things, I, I think is an opportunity to and sharing that is, a, is I think an opportunity. So like a formal curriculum will will help. It to a formal curriculum for my informal experiences will be beneficial. Yes, Dr. Matt. I don't know. I just... So I, I, I'm struck by the fact that I'm always a little bit surprised when I find out that someone's been struggling, and I wonder that people feel like they're completely alone in their um, burnout, that they can't share it, and so I'm, I'm particularly interested in the physician-physician support part of this because I feel like when I went through uh, residency, the attitude was... You're a doctor, like woman up, you know. Yeah. You weren't. You weren't. It's okay to feel sad about something, but you weren't. It could not affect what you were doing, and it could not affect your getting right back on the job. Yeah. One minute later, and so that you felt like, oh, I must be the only one who's this weak. So I, I think that I, I don't know if that's being 
particularly addressed, especially because we there's a whole culture of making fun of millennials for right. We don't want the pendulum to swing. We want to still keep supporting people in their emotions, and that are there particular parts of the curriculum for that physician to physician support? Yeah, and and I think and I think that is kind of like the the larger the larger theme of this talk is to is to actually like develop that further because because. Um, because eventually I turn towards other residents and towards other, other people. And, and we all do this. We all do this in some ways. And I know attendings turn to other attendings. And, and I think but formalizing that, that curriculum is what's important. Um, and being able to, and, and having space to talk about these issues is, is I think, is, is, is important. And I think we, we, could do, we could do a better job of creating such spaces. Um, for physicians to support other physicians, because no one goes through it alone. Like everyone in this room has experienced these feelings. These are not novel feelings, but it's just like we still refrain from talking about them, and I think we should not. So um, thank you so much for your talk today. I thought you did a fabulous job. Um, as I was thinking about some of your comments and, and some of the comments that have been made afterwards, you mentioned kind of the physician's role in dealing with patients and studying the biology and fixing the biology to fix the person and how our new models of medical education and it may be a little bit um, contradictory to Flexner's ideas of what we need um, but actually impact patient care more and, and healthcare delivery and so as we think about how to do this I think narrative medicine provides a nice opportunity to add that component of reflection and we can bring ourselves back into the picture and help avoid or mitigate burnout symptoms by being able to be more authentic to ourselves. As I did the DH engagement survey yesterday, um, <laughs> one of the questions asked about, are you able to be authentic in your workplace? And as physicians and as healthcare providers, we're taught to have that distance and to put those feelings aside but when you think about some of the other things that diverse <clears throat> members of our population or our community bring to play and how those interact with some of the other delicate situations that we deal with with our patients, that reflective piece is really important. And so it's not only about how do you connect with the patient, but also what is that doing to you and why, and what in your personal experience and your cultural experiences are you bringing to that plate and how can we value that more each other. That was polite. Let's stand on the You are, I think, ready to be launched from the Upper Valley. Hopefully. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.